You know, this is uh, just the Sunday before New Year's, and New Year's always holds with it in most of our minds that idea of just a new beginning, of new starts, of new commitments. Some of you, 2014 was a rough year. If it never comes again, it will be too soon. Well, this is a time of year most people, a lot of people make resolutions. I uh, heard it said this week that a New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. <laughs> Thank you for getting that. The other two celebrations weren't near as astute as you were. <laughs> I, uh, I got on the internet this week and tried to find people's New Year's resolutions, and here's some of the ones I found. Maybe you'll want to steal one of these. My New Year's resolution is to stop hanging out with people who ask me about my New Year's resolutions. One person wrote, if, I, if 2014 was a person, I'd sue him for pain and suffering and lost wages. This New Year's, I resolved to be less awesome since it's really the only thing I do in excess. <laughs> so for all you humble people, you can, you can take that one. One person wrote, may all your troubles last as long as you're near, you, you, near, near good grief. Just forget that one. No. May all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. My New Year's resolution is to break my New Year's resolutions. That way I succeed at something. <laughs> I like this one. My 2015 resolution is for everyone else to gain the 50 pounds I refuse to lose. It's all relative. If everybody else... And this is the one I'm taking on. I'm going to steal this one. There have been many times in 2014 when I have annoyed you, disturbed you, irritated you, and bugged the tar out of you. Today, I just want to tell you I plan to continue in 2015. <laughs> and then this one, I have only one resolution, to rediscover the difference between wants and needs. My, may I have all I need and want all I have. You know, I don't think that's this, that dissimilar to Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 6 when he says that godliness with contentment is great gain. I believe that contentment is only found when we truly know that all we need is God and that He has great plans for our lives. So as we stand on the edge of this another year, another new beginning, I want to encourage and challenge you with God's great plan for you. In your worship folder are some notes, and uh, let me warn you about these notes. Because of the holiday, I had to have these done like way ahead of time. And if you know me, I don't do sermons way ahead of time. So those are just some notes. If you'd like to follow along, good luck. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think they're actually fairly accurate, okay. But we'll, 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 we'll veer off now and then. Let me just put it that way, okay. <clears throat> In Job 17, Job says this, Where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Who will go down to the, the bars of shale? Shall we descend together into the dust? Oh, the suffering of Job. In short, Job's suffering was brought on by Satan's challenge to God that Job would not follow God if his life was filled with loss and suffering and uncertainty. Not to mention, filled with the extremely poor advice of his friends and even his wife. The book of Job is 42 chapters long. 
But by chapter 17, Job is asking this question. He is not in a good place. Where then is my hope? In the midst of life's challenges and life's sorrows and loss and questions, we can be in a place like Job. And we get there sometimes because we forget about truth. We're lacking in trust. We even get to the place of not seeing or knowing the presence of God in our lives. Where is our hope? Where's God's great plan for me? Well, listen carefully. Here's what Job came to understand in the last chapter. He says this. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Quite a turnaround. And he's talking about these things now, looking back, this, this loss and sorrow and grief and lack of hope. He looks back and he says, I, I didn't even understand what was going on. These were things too wonderful for me to know. In Jeremiah 29, the prophet says this, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which, which I sent you into exile. Now, while these are promises specifically to the people of Israel, let me point out that it came in the time of their captivity, in the midst of loss, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of loss of hope but certainly we can be confident that God has plans for us not these specifically he has plans for our future that are hopeful that are kingdom impacting and I believe even from this passage we can confidently know that he is a God who wants to be found and he wants to rescue us from sin and death and when we seek him with all of our heart he allows himself to be found but there's an important difference between these men who lived before the coming of Christ and you and I. We live on this side of the cross. Each person who's a follower of Christ, everyone who bows their knee to the sovereign God has the indwelling Holy Spirit. Each one who knows his own sinfulness before a holy God and acknowledges that only through the shed blood of Jesus can he be made righteous and gives God full control of his life receives the Holy Spirit. You see, within us, on this side of the cross, is the spirit of hope within us. The spirit that empowers us and guides us and convicts us and on and on. A lost part, often forgotten of the Christmas story, is about a humble priest named Simeon who knew something was changing over 2,000 years ago when he stood in the temple and met a young couple named Mary and Joseph. 
who had brought their eight-day-old son with them. And here's what happens in Luke 2. Where Simeon, upon Jesus' presentation in the temple for purification of circumcision, says this. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You see, salvation had come. Hope had come. The Messiah had come. God's great plan for mankind had taken a huge step forward. You see, Simeon knew what we need to be reminded of today at the beginning of 2015. He is the great plan. In Jesus, we have victory, and we have hope, and we have impact. And that's what I want to challenge you with today as we look at three aspects of this blessed truth that we have seen our salvation. Hope has come. Three aspects of God's blessed truth, God's great plan for you. The first is there is victory through the gospel. There's victory through the gospel. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54, says this. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death is, has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers... Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There is an awesome promise of victory in this passage. But we don't let this amazing truth lull us into complacency, do we? Somehow with the idea that, well, we're forgiven, so the fact that we're imperfect, no big deal. We've got victory. We'll just sit back. No, our victory, our forgiveness, our right standing with God should never cause us to take a seat on the spiritual sidelines. Paul is reminding the Corinthians, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know it's not in vain. You've already gained the victory. We also shouldn't let it give us the idea that we can achieve it on our own merit. The victory is the Lord's, and we move forward in that victory. Some have called the journey of the Christian the restless race of those who rest in grace. The restless race of those who rest in grace. Paul obviously rested in a righteousness that was not his own. But as you can clearly see in this passage, the very interesting result was that his assurance became a stimulant not a sedative. And I fear that many Christians today <laughs> take this as a sedative. I'll just sit back, let God do what he's going to do, and I've got the victory anyway. But for Paul, it was a stimulant to his passion to follow God's will and further God's glory. Gratefulness propelled him forward. Paul's resting in the truth is actually a restless wrestling. Rest, good, I can't even say anything this morning. 
Paul's resting in the truth is a restless resting. The grace that has seized Paul's heart has sent him in a, on a lifelong race. Paul is overjoyed to be forgiven, but not content to stop short of the completion of the Spirit's renovation of his life. We're all being renovated, aren't we? Well, those who are maturing in Christ, I believe, will share Paul's mindset. Not complacent, but rather striving to know Christ more fully and to reflect Him more faithfully. Paul's pressing on is not nearly a, it's, it's not just a stoic stubbornness, though Paul probably could have been accused of that. It's a persistent quest for a goal, a goal that he was confident he would attain. He was sure of it. He knew he'd get the victory because of the work of Christ in him through the gospel. See, Paul practiced active obedience. Active obedience is that striving for the prize at the finish line because Christ has already seized you and is your power to press forward to the finish line. Now, it's, it's important we talk for just a moment about the struggle to live in this victory. It's true, right? It is a challenge to live in this victory. Sometimes there are seasons that are harder than others. If you're like me, maybe you've asked the question, well, why when I first came to Christ did I feel like everything was on turbo? And now, a year or two or three or maybe later in our walk with Christ, I feel as though I'm fighting for every inch of ground. Well, I think we look no further than Paul's example of an Olympic race that he uses as a metaphor in his writings for the Christian life. Here we find some insight, I think. You see, a race begins with what? A bolt out of the blocks. It propels the runner forward. It's that burst of speed, especially in short runs, that, that pushes the runner out of the gate. And then, though on longer races, as the race progresses, that initial push is gone. That energy that is at the beginning of the race is starting to wane, and the runner has to think back to their training and the truth that they know how to run the race through the power of endurance. You see, I, just a thought I had this week, and I hope it makes sense to you, because if it doesn't, I got something out of it. We start from victory. We start from that propulsion of the Spirit in our lives at the moment that the Holy Spirit enters our life, and we give Christ ruling authority. We start with victory, and we run towards victory even though along the way it can get hard to both see the starting line or the finish line. We must endure along the way. This last May, New Life had its very first 5K run down in uh, Creekside, and so I decided uh, that, okay, now I'll run my first 5K run. This is something I need to do, so I tried to prepare. Of course, I didn't listen to people who had ever run a 5K run or anything. I thought I would just prepare on my own, get this all figured out. Well, the beginning of that race came, I started strong. I'm thinking, wh why are all these people who have done this before behind me? I must be really good. <laughs> I was very, you know, was very excited, just a bit too fast there at the beginning because what happens? Well, you get into the middle of the race and you start realizing, I, yeah, I came out of the gate fast, 
but it, that same thing isn't working for me right now. And I moved into that, okay, you can do this. This is, you've done this before, you've trained, you've done all this work, you, you, can, you can pull this off. And limping across the finish line. Behind all those who had been behind me, you know, just several minutes really earlier. See, that's the Christian race too, isn't it? That we propel out of that gate. We have victory in Christ. We're building on that victory and we're, we're going, going, going and, su and stuff. Then we hit obstacles along the way. And then we have to start, we look back and we think, I can't, I can't see this starting line anymore. And we get discouraged and we feel like God has left us in this race and he's not there to keep pushing us on and we have to go back to the beginnings and realize that within me is, the, is victory that I have in Christ. See, maybe you're in an endurance phase of your spiritual race right now. I'd encourage you to run in the truth and endure. A phrase I use all the time to try to push people on is, what is the truth? What is the truth in this situation? Because in that race, we start to believe lies, and we start to let ourselves get confused, and we let the enemy speak things into our life. Here's the truth of the gospel that you must constantly be preaching to yourself as you fight for that victory line. I have been rescued from sin's guilt. I have been rescued from sin's penalty. I have been rescued from sin's dominion. And eventually I will be rescued from sin's sting of death and sin's presence. You see, God has called us to a future hope. Ephesians 1.18 says that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. We have victory through the gospel. You wonder whether there, God has a great plan for you? The first thing you have to remember is that there is victory through the gospel. The second is that there is hope through suffering. There is hope through suffering. Romans 5 beginning in verse 2, says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, wouldn't it be nice if it just ended there? But not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Philippians chapter 3 says, For his sake, for his sake, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. There's an important, important truth to get. And there are whole books out there that say the opposite of this. But let me put a piece of truth out there as best I can. In Scripture... There is never a promise of life without sorrow or temptation or loss. Never. But 
There is the promise that our gracious Father is there through it with us. In verse 8, Paul essentially is saying, I continue to lose and suffer all things. I lose the things the world admires, but I count these things as garbage that I can gain Christ. They're garbage. See, Paul says, I'm not giving up anything important. It's just a pile of trash for the sake of gaining Christ. Now, doesn't Paul already have Christ? Well, of course, verse 12 says he has already obtained this. He's already obtained Christ. He already knows Christ. But Paul wants everything that God can give him. He isn't looking for just part of the truth. He wants it all. And he won't settle for a kind of Christianity that's nice and easy and just gets you to heaven. Indeed, there is no such thing. There isn't a nice and easy get you to heaven Christianity. He wants all of what God has to offer, and this includes losing everything else in order to have Christ. If we kept reading through Philippians chapter 3, It shows all that he wants in Christ. He says this, that I may be found in him, that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may be conformed to his death, that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is actually saying, I get more in suffering. Now and in the resurrection. So I guess he'd say this to us. Get ready to suffer. It's coming for you. Now what I mean is, not coming for you. It's coming for you. Suffering is for you. It is for me. It propels us forward, not at us, but for us. There is hope in our suffering. Pastor John Piper says this about what he calls the intimacy factor of suffering. He says, God has ordained that you will know him and know his son in a way more deeply, more sweetly, more satisfyingly, more amazingly, more wonderfully through suffering than any other way. Ultimately, the hope we find through suffering is Christ himself. He is our hope. It's not some outside hope, but it comes from the intimacy of relationship with Jesus. There is victory through the gospel. There is hope through our suffering. And some of us in this room have suffered deeply in 2014. But there is hope in your suffering. Your suffering is for you somehow. It's a matter of figuring out how we stand in that truth and we endure That's what brings us to the the third piece of God's plan for us. There's impact through obedience. Impact through obedience. Matthew 5 says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
There's impact through our daily obedience. We are light because Christ lives in us. He shines forth through us. We cannot hide it. But being a light has daily ramifications in our decision-making. That whenever I'm called upon to choose between anything in Christ, I choose Christ. No matter what it is. Anything else or Christ, I choose Christ. I deal with all the things in this world in a way that draws me closer to Christ or I don't deal with them. A great question to ask yourself, will this decision, will moving in this direction, will do, taking this action, will it move me closer to Christ? If it does, then move that direction. If the answer is no, don't even deal with it. Don't even go there. You say, well, that sounds simple. It is. <laughs> This doesn't draw me closer to Christ. I don't do that. I don't go that direction. I don't see that thing. I don't listen to that thing. I don't. If we are light, we deal with the things in the world in a way that shows that these things are not my treasure. Because all they are, Paul says, is a pile of garbage. I mean, you don't go out on Tuesdays in the morning and take all your treasure to the street, do you, those of us who live in Gehenna? You don't go through your house like I do every Monday night and get all the stuff out of the baskets and dump them in the, and then go, well, glad we're taking everything that's important to us to the street. It doesn't work that way. That's not what we do, right? We take our trash to the street. We don't really know whatever happens to it, but we take it to the street and somebody comes by and gets it and see those things aren't our treasure, are they? And yet we cling to them. And when it comes to those things or Christ, sometimes we go, oh, I want that, I want that piece of garbage. And in this light, we need to be people who can lose any and all things the world offers without losing our joy. As a matter of fact, I think Paul would challenge us to lose it all and watch the joy increase. Now, I do see two responses real quickly that are not what we see here, but it seems they seem to be easy go-to for some Christians. The first is perfectionism, we'll call it that, or at least the appearance of, I have it all together. I've got this thing figured out. This is kind of the idea that our actions, our own efforts, make God more pleased with us and at some level enhance our impact on others. If I, if I can come across as perfect, then I can help others. Now, there are a couple of pastors besides me in the room this morning, but if the guys who aren't here, don't tell them, Brett, okay? Pastors are notorious for this. We've got our act together, right? It's on our business card. It says, Pastor. You know, some of the letters in the word perfect are in that word, so, you know, that's just what it is, right? I know that it is vital for me to make sure that I have people who are very close to me, who know me fully, so I don't start believing my own press. And you do too. Paul, clearly throughout his writings, particularly in Romans 7, now let me tell you, we're getting ready to start a study of Romans 8. Read that ahead of time, but let me give you something else to read. Read Romans 7, and then read Romans 8, because Romans 8 will make much more sense if you understand Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul says, I am a complete mess. 
You see, Paul wants to make sure that people don't think he is perfect, but that he is being perfected. He's not godly on his own merit, but completely dependent upon the work of Jesus. That's interesting because Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But it's with the clear understanding that he is a flawed example. Seems to me that he purposely clarifies his statement. Look, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's as though he's saying, if it's obvious that I'm following Christ, which is what I'm striving to do, then do what I do. But if it looks like I'm struggling in my spiritual journey and I am off base, don't follow me. Perfectionism, I've got it all together. No, but nobody really knows me. Here's the deal, you know yourself. I know myself. And it's all kind of a sham, isn't it? That our obedience to Christ isn't choosing Christ above all. That I'm still hanging on to the garbage pile, but I'm giving off a good impression. The second go-to sometimes is what I call grace abuse. Romans 6 says, what shall we say then, or should we continue in sin that grace can abound? This is the idea that I can slack off in my effort to walk with Jesus, even go as far as to say, I can do whatever I want to since I've been shown grace, I'm good. This is not the outcome of a life that has been impacted and changed by grace. This is a person looking for an easy out, and I would say not a Christ follower at all. It's a misunderstanding of grace. So we can't fall into either of those situations. Either of those beliefs. But that we have impact through obedience to Christ and his best for us. So is there somehow a balance between God's sovereign grace and our obedience? One writer put it this way, listen carefully. God's sovereignty frees us from nervous apprehension of suffering, spiritual challenges, even our own unknown future. We know that nothing will happen to us, not even traumatic and painful things that lie outside his plan to do us good and make us more like Jesus. The worst dangers in the world cannot separate us from his love. At the same time, the reality that he works out his perfect plan through our and others' decisions and actions makes our choices significant and our actions meaningful to the achievement of God's good and invincible goals. God works through our obedience as he draws us to himself. Just look at Jesus' costly obedience for us. He obeyed to the point of death. And in the same way, we must persist in the path of obeying the Lord, even when obedience seems to bear no fruit, elicit no appreciation, or immediate feelings of achievement, or when it demands putting our personal desires and preferences on the back burner, even to the extent that it is painful and inconvenient when it costs us dearly. We must obey, as it costs Jesus his very life for us. Just as in the race, if it gets harder as the race gets longer, our obedience should not be only consistent, but increasing. Our obedience has to gain steam to get to that goal. It's simple. We rest in grace. 
And in that resting, we find power. And through that power, we run toward the goal to be found in Christ. We run to the finish line. God has great plans for us, New Life. Great plans for you. Kingdom-sized plans. And I want us to, with no movement, not quite done, I want you to take a look at this video. Listen carefully to the words. Watch the words carefully and let this seep into your heart and be encouraged. A new year is before us. And God is already there waiting for us to join Him. God has provided victory through the gospel. He has given us hope through our suffering. And He will impact others' lives because of our obedience. Indeed, He has great plans ahead. And so today, I think we can all come and acknowledge the gospel at His table with its body and blood, letting it renew us and in, enliven us to walk in its truth, the truth of His suffering for our good, of His death for our life. Some of us need to grieve loss and move into this new year with renewed hope. Every period of time we come to a time where we grieve our losses and place them at the feet of Jesus and with Paul say I'm going to put behind me those things which are in the past and I'm going to move into the future maybe it's the loss of a person dear and close to you or the loss of a dream or a job the loss of health or even the loss of something that you've held on to for your hope but must now acknowledge that our hope is only in Jesus. There's all kinds of loss. Maybe there's a hurt that you've not let go of. Grieve the hurt, but release it and move forward and press toward the future. Each time we, we come to this day in our congregation, we specifically... In memorial, talk about the loss of ministry partners who have gone to be with the Lord over the past period of time. And we did this service a year and a half ago. Since then, we've lost seven ministry partners. This certainly doesn't include many of you who have lost family members this year and good friends. These are just ministry partners here at New Life. And there are seven candles here, one for each of those losses. On June 21st of 2013, Ron Wilson, who had been a long-term ministry partner here, passed into eternity after struggling through early-onset Alzheimer's. His body just completely started to shut down. And let me share what his wife said last night after our time together. She said that the thing she'd struggled with the most, and maybe this will encourage some of you, she said the thing she'd struggled with the most was in his last hours, the trouble he had breathing, just gasping for every breath and fighting just to get air in his lungs. 
and it always haunted her. And she said, but God completely gave her a new way of looking at it last night. So at the end of a long run, you're struggling to get those breaths that it takes to finish the race. And that now, not as a, she didn't see it as a negative now. That it was Ron pushing forward and taking those last breaths of finishing and crossing the line. On February 19th of this year, Sarah Mays, one of our dear ladies from our Saturday night celebration, passed into eternity. She, you know, if you knew Sarah, she couldn't really speak and sing, but she would stand in the back of the auditorium and dance and lift her hands in worship. Now she's doing it along with the singing. April 5th of this year, Bill Mays, her son, passed into eternity after years of struggling physically. And most of us who knew Bill kind of realized he probably just followed mom home. September 17th of this year, after lots of struggles physically and particularly a just a rough, rough last year, Dawn Martin stepped into eternity where I think she's dancing away without that dead gum walker. On October 28th, just a couple months ago, very suddenly, very surprisingly, Sue Baumgartner, one of our small group leaders, stepped into eternity and was finally healed of all the stuff she struggled with. On November the 6th, Ron Washburn, one of our charter members here at New Life, almost 30 years, after seven or eight years of struggle with cancer, stepped into eternity and is doing way better now. And then just a couple weeks ago on December 8th, Annie Floyd, who had gone through years of pain with Alzheimer's, got to see Jesus. So we honor them today and we we grieve their loss for us. You know, these represent them, and if they were here, they'd say, we're doing way better. You want to know about healing? We know about healing. You want to know about peace? We know it now. You want to know if the race is worth it, if fighting to that tape for the last time is worth it? We can tell you it is. We're waiting at the finish line with a big bottle of heaven water. In both these ways, both in lighting candles in this center aisle and coming to the Lord's table, we declare the gospel that is offered to us through the suffering and obedience of Jesus Christ. It is here in these acts of remembrance today that we can gain strength and have impact as we run boldly into obedience to Christ. As our worship team plays and as we worship, we have more than enough time to take our time. I'd encourage you to participate in these two ways today. Our prayer partners are going to be on the sides. If you'd like somebody to specifically pray with you through a need, maybe the, you're in the midst of what we've talked about today and you just want somebody to pray with you and 
for you and over you. So as the music plays, as you're ready, take your time. Let's participate in these acts of remembrance today.